Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we pray, pray that you may clear our minds of uh, all the cobwebs and uh, distracting thoughts and help us to apply our minds to this wonderful vision of heaven that it may make a difference in the way that we live today, the way that we look at ourselves, the way that we look at the world, the way that we prioritize our lives, our time, our energies, our monies. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, what do you think about heaven? Uh, Do you think about heaven? Is it something that crosses your mind or something that you think about uh, at all? Now, I'm not talking about going to heaven, because I think uh, thinking about going to heaven is a good thing, but I'm talking about heaven itself. Do you ever think about heaven? About what happens there, what is happening there, who is there? Because really, as Christians, if we believe the Bible, then we believe that there is a heaven, we believe that God is there, we believe that Jesus is there, we believe that something is happening in heaven right now. So do you think about heaven? Because if we believe in heaven and we think about what's happening in heaven, then what happens in heaven is very important to us. It should change the way that we look at the world and it should change the way that we look at ourselves. It should be a reality to us. And I think that if we could really understand heaven, then the things that we think are really important now in this world may not be so important at all. And the things that we think are not so important actually might be really important. So today, as we look at this passage, which is quite a a dense and long passage, it is actually a glimpse of heaven. It begins in chapter 4, verse 1, where John says that he saw a door standing open to heaven. And a voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now the voice that speaks to him is actually the voice of chapter 1, verse 10 which is the voice of Jesus. And the first thing we notice is, he says, look, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. He doesn't say, uh, I'm going to show you what might happen after this or what might possibly happen after this. There's no plan B or contingency plan. He shows you, he says, this is what must happen after this. So God is up there in heaven and he's calling the shots of what happens here on earth in the future. And there is no if, there is no but, there is no contingency. This is what is going to happen. God is in control from heaven. Now why is he in control? How do we see that he's in control? Well, John in verse 2 says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now, the vision here is probably, he sees a lot of things, but the thing that really captures his attention is the throne. Okay, and I think that as we read the Bible, sometimes we read really quickly and we think, ah, okay, throne, that's good. Let's go on to the really important bit. Where's the action? But the throne is really important because it is the thing that, that first draws John's attention. It's like you go into a big art gallery and there are many, many artifacts, many paintings, but there's one which draws your attention. And what he sees is this magnificent throne. Now, what does the throne mean? Hey, what does the throne mean? I'm not sure whether when we finally go up to heaven, whether we'll see God sitting on this big, magnificent gold throne or something. Okay, but what does the throne mean? What does it symbolize? Well, the throne here literally symbolizes the rule and sovereignty and power of God. Okay, there's there's nothing less than that. It It symbolizes the rule of God. That's what throne means. Okay, when you sit on the throne, it means that you are ruling for the throne. 
And I like what this commentator, uh, this Wetherington guy says. He says, the book's central theological symbol is the throne. The throne. Because it answers the question, to whom does the earth belong to? Who is the ruler of the earth? It is God. Right? So what he says is actually the throne is, is a very important central part of the book of Revelation because it shows God is ruling. And this is very important because as we've been looking in the book of Revelation, uh, Christians in those days had another throne, another ruler. Who was that? It was Caesar, the emperor. And they were being persecuted by the Roman emperors. And, and therefore, it would seem as if the real worldly throne was the real power, Caesar or you know, some emperor. But in this vision, who is the real ruler of the world? It is God. And for ourselves as well, it's a very important lesson that no matter what throne that we sit under, maybe your boss is the throne over your life, right? or maybe it's something else, but the real throne, the real ruler is God. And I like what Philip Jensen said, the one preacher, he said, there is no democracy in heaven, you see. Okay? Uh, it's not like when you go to heaven every three years, you can put a ballot and you can pick whether you want God to still remain as your boss. No. God is permanently and totally in control of all of your life. Okay? And that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be because He is in the throne. Now therefore, if He's in the throne, what, is, you know, what, what then does He look like? What is this powerful figure who sits on the throne, who rules over everything? What does He look like? Well, <clears throat> in verse 3, he says, and, and, and the one who sat there uh, on this throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and a rainbow resembling, resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Now, the interesting thing is, you never know what God looks like. Uh, right? Is he big? Is he small? Does he have five fingers? Five toes? Big nose? Small nose? There's nothing here. We don't know what God looks like. All that we see, all John sees, is this magnificent, dazzling light, like a rainbow. It's like, someone says, you know, it's like when you ever, you know, uh, if you ever go and get married, you'll go to the jewelry shop, and you have all these diamonds, right? And they say, oh, this 18 carat, I don't know how many carats. Lah. Okay, and you look at the light, and the light is just magnificent, right? It's shining, and you can't really describe it. You know, you turn it one way, it looks like it's dazzling one way. You turn it another way, it looks really nice. But you see, these are the, these are, this is how God is described here. So we don't really understand uh, all these things, right? But uh, this is what it looks like. <coughs> Excuse me. So this, apparently, is, uh, is Jasper. Okay, it's not the ghost. All right. Jasper is some sort of precious, uh, precious uh, stone. Okay, and it's white color. Uh, a carnelian is this red stone. An emerald, I mean, I'm sure we all know emerald is a green stone. The green lantern sort of thing. Okay, what he sees is this magnificent colors. Okay, so the next slide. So it's almost as if he sees God as this wonderful, wonderful color. And, and, and that's the way God really is. It's like, uh, how do you express or explain a God who is whiter than the whitest snow? Or how do you express a God who is more magnificent than the most stunning sunset? Or how do you express a God who is more awesome and the unleashing forces of nature, you can't, isn't it? When, when, when John sees God, he sees this dazzling display of colors, of magnificence, of glory. And that's why we must never see God as some sort of souped up 
human being. Right? He's not slightly bigger than us, right? So it's not like this. Okay? So this is Michelangelo and this is God and this is Adam. Okay? So God is not like this older person who is wiser and slightly bigger and more powerful who floats in the air. No? Like next slide. Right? This is God again by Michelangelo. He's not like that. But God is indescribable. He's just pure light and power and magnificence. So uh, we actually had uh, someone in our congregation, I-, I won't tell you who, who drew this picture for us. And uh, they drew the picture based on uh, Revelation chapter 4. And here's God, isn't it? And what is God? God has no form. God is just the colors and, and the brilliance in the picture. But it's not just uh, the picture that actually shows us the magnificence and the glory and the dazzling awesomeness of God. It is also the sound. Okay, it's also the sound. So look at what it says in verse 5 and verse 6. From the throne came flashes of lightning. You better turn it off actually, if not people keep looking at it. (coughs) Okay? Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. From the throne seven lamps uh, were blazing. Okay, and there were seven, the, these are the seven spirits of God, and also before the throne was looked like a sea of glass, clear crystal. Now, in the Old Testament, we've also seen that whenever God appears, there usually comes thunder and lightning. Now, if you think of uh, life before our modern world, uh, the most powerful force of nature was thunder and lightning. This is before uh, the nuclear bomb, right? Or nuclear power. Because before nuclear power, the most awesome thing you can think of in terms of nature is thunder and lightning. And thunder and lightning are uncontrollable forces of nature. You can't bottle thunder, you can't bottle lightning. It is just there, right? And it's sort of the most awesome, uncontrollable uh, manifestation of nature, of power. And here we see that's what God is like. He's like light, brilliant light. But He's also like thunder and lightning. And that's what God is like. He's, he's a picture of power, majesty, glory, and awesomeness. And how then do the, to the angelic beings or the people in heaven or the creatures of heaven respond to such a powerful, awesome, glorious being like God? Well, in this passage, we see that uh, there are four uh, living creatures. Okay, four living creatures. And we can see that in um, verse uh, 6 there were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in the front and in the back and the first living creature was like a lion and the second was like an ox and the third had a face like a man the fourth was like a flying eagle okay and then also there were, there were these elders uh, verse 4 there were 24 elders who sat in these 24 thrones and they were dressed in wine, the crowns of gold in their head. Now, uh, again, a picture is very helpful because I think this is a visual thing, right? So, next slide. Okay, so uh, this one is drawn by someone else. Okay, if you'd like to draw pictures, come and let me know. I can let you uh, okay, be, uh, be up here. So, here are the four living creatures on the inside. Most probably on the inside based on what the passage is saying. And then there are 24 elders sitting on the outside. And what do these creatures represent and what they do? Well, the four living creatures here, um, they're quite similar to what we see in the Old Testament. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 1, we see these creatures, which are very similar. In Ezekiel chapter 10, we see the cherubim, who again are quite similar. 
In Isaiah chapter 6, there are the seraphim who sing a song. In Daniel chapter 7, there were four beasts. But if you go and look at all these Old Testament passages, they are similar, but they are also slightly different to what we read in Revelation chapter 4. It's like when you go to Thailand, you know, you buy these shirts, same, same, but different. Right? It's a bit like that. Right? They are similar, but they are not exactly the same. But they are somehow angelic beings. But these angelic beings represent something. And in the ancient world, the eagle, the ox, the lion, and the man, if you think about it, these are like the most noblest and the most powerful of all of, uh, of the range of creatures in this world. So in a 300 AD, a Jewish writer wrote, What is the mightiest bird? It is the eagle. What is the strongest domesticated animal? It is the ox. What is the, the greatest of the wild animals? It is the lion. And which is the greatest creature of them all? It is man. So I think what the, the picture that John sees here, okay, is uh, this is the lion, the ox, the eagle, and the man. These represent, these angelic rep- beings represent the whole of humanity. Right? The noblest and the most powerful and the strongest of all of, of the creatures in this world. And the 24 elders, well, uh, this is a bit harder to explain, but uh, some people say that they're just angelic beings. Some people say that it comes from uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 5, which is symbolic of the 24 courses of the Aaronic priesthood. But some people say, which is what most people agree, is that they are representing all of God's people, the 12 apostles and the 12 patriarchs. Uh, 12 plus 12 equals... 24, okay? But whatever they are, they are obviously very powerful uh, creatures, very powerful angelic beings because in the Bible it says that they all sit on thrones and each of them have a crown on their head and they wear white. Uh, White could symbolize righteousness but white could also symbolize conquest as we will see in the first rider, white symbolizes conquest. So what do these four living creatures and the 24 elders do? What do they do with their time in heaven? Do they watch ESPN? No, right? They spend their time praising God. Praising God. And each of them, each distinct type of creature, praises God in a different way. So these, uh, this is written for us, the living creatures praise God and say, which is found here in verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. So these four living creatures uh, who represent the whole of uh, the created world, they praise God for three things. His holiness, holy, holy, holy. That means His moral purity, His separateness from us. Praise God for His almightiness, His mightiness. He is almighty. They praise God for His permanence, who was, who is, and always will be. This is what they praise God. Three things. Holiness, His mightiness, His permanence. But the 24 elders, these uh, creatures outside, they praise God for a completely different thing. And we see that in verse 10. You are worthy... uh, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, 
God is a creator. We are not creators. We are creatures. You might say, wow, you know, I created this wonderful work of art. But all we really do is we remodel things. We take what is already there and we just make it into a different form. But what God does is that He creates out of nothing. By His will, they were created and come into being. Okay, so God is, is praised because He is mighty, He is holy, He is permanent, and He is our Creator. But they don't just praise with the words, right? But they praise with their actions. The actions of the creature, the creatures, those heavenly creatures, show their worship. So it says there in verse 8, right, those living creatures, the four living creatures, day and night, day and night, they never stop praising God for His holiness, His mightiness, and His permanence. Now, I don't think that day and night literally means that uh, uh, you know, they don't sleep or whatever. But day and night is, is again a language of how their whole, the center of their life unceasingly is given over to worship and praise God. You know, it's like um, sometimes my wife takes me to watch a movie and we always watch those girly movies, right? And then it's always like, you know, some, the main protagonist will say, oh, I can't stop thinking about her. Day and night, I'm always thinking about her. Right? It's that sort of idea. So here, the, twi- the four living creatures are filled with an obsession with praising God. It is the center of their life. And here the 24 elders, the 24 elders also are the same thing. Right? Because in verse 10, they fall down before Him and worship Him, for, you know, worship Him, the, the, the one who sits on the throne. Now, symbolically, it makes sense, right? They are, they are perpetually getting off their chair and bowing down before God. They're getting on the chair, bowing down before God. That means, uh, if you think of it literally, that doesn't make sense because you don't need the chair anymore. Okay? Uh, that's why in this picture, this, this person did a good job. Next slide. See, that's why the chairs are all fallen down, you see? Because, really, you don't need, <coughs> you don't need the chair anymore because you're just getting up. Sitting down, falling down, sitting up, falling down, laying down, the thing. It's like, you know, it's, it's a perpetual movement. But what it's trying to show is not so much that uh, that's the way that we should worship God. You know, our whole life is sitting down, falling down on the ground, prostrate, putting down our, our, our crowns. But it's a symbolic thing of actually showing what true worship is like to God. It is actually bowing down before God and putting down the, the crowns before Him. Now, what do these crowns mean? Uh, I think that, that uh, this commentator uh, makes a very good point. He says that the crowns actually show that all of life is delegated to us. Right? These people are very powerful heavenly beings, but they're saying that even the crowns that they have, all the glory that they have is laid before God. And that's what true worship is like. We lay all we have before God, all our gifts, all our wealth, all our energy, it's all laid before God. So I think that as we look at this picture of heaven, what does it teach us? What does it teach us? Well, I think the first thing it teaches us is that God is God, isn't it? Do you see God as 
your Creator? Do you see God as holy, as unparalleled in mightiness and totally permanent? Because if that is your God, then day and night it should be your obsession to worship Him. Now, as, as Presbyterians, we, uh, we have uh, a lot of uh, catech- uh, confessions and there's this thing called the Presbyterian Shorter uh, Confession. Right? So as Presbyterians, we all believe in this. And the first point of the Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Anybody know the answer to that? The chief man, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Okay, that's the first question of the, the shorter catechism for Presbyterians. And I think that's true, isn't it? That the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I think that's why day and night, the idea of your obsession in life must be to glorify God and also to enjoy a relationship with Him. So it's not just coming to church where you worship God or your quiet time on your Bible study, but the whole of life must be given over to God. And I, uh, I heard this uh, pastor in Australia giving this illustration saying, you know, part of the problem in Australia is people keep worshipping the created things. They give their lives over to the beach, to going to the park, so you know, you can enjoy your food, enjoy music, enjoy family, enjoy nature. But it is dumb, isn't it, to worship the created things. We must worship God, our Creator. And day and night, that is the attitude that we must have. Day and night, we must give glory to God in everything that we do. The second thing that I think we learn here is the idea of laying down the crowns before God. That's what the elders do. When they worship God, it's not as an emotional thing. right? They're not crying, they're not weeping, they're not clapping but they're actually bowing down before God and laying their crowns before God. And symbolic of giving all of yourself, all everything you have is given to God. Now, uh, Don Carson was uh, once asked by a non-Christian, you know, why does God need to be praised all the time? Like you're saying, you know, imagine you have a, a normal human being and they want to be praised all the time. You think, oh, that guy is very insecure, isn't it? Because, you know, I've got to keep patting him in the back, stroking him, you know, making him feel better. It's God like that. Does God need us to praise him all the time because he's like really insecure? He needs to see a psychiatrist or something. No. He says, you see, it's different, you know, as human beings, if we want to be praised all the time, then we are elevating ourselves up to be God. But actually praising God is the right response of a creature. We are giving him his due worth is due worship as our Creator God, as the one who sustains us and has given us everything. So just as God has given us all these things, we must recognize what God has done for us and give Him His true worth and, and, and say, this is all yours, God, and this is not mine. So do we do that? Do you give God back what He is really, give Him back His worth, lay down everything we have before Him and do we have the attitude where day and night we glorify God, and not just because we come to church on a Sunday. Now the picture change, uh, changes a bit in chapter 5. And again, it's the same scene in heaven, the heavenly throne room. 
But this time there is a new element. Okay? And this new element is that he sees a scroll. A scroll. Okay, now, uh, this is what an ancient scroll would look like. Okay, it's a two sided thing. Okay? <coughs> so this is in Chinese. Okay? But uh, he sees a scroll. And uh, this, in the ancient world, this is a scroll, they, they, they write and then they fold it together. But this time he sees the scroll is written on two sides. Okay, this is only one side. And, and the idea is it's written on two sides because it's completely full. There's nothing lacking, there's nothing missing in it. But the thing is with this scroll, is, it's sealed with wax. Okay, there's a seal in it with seven seals. Now, a seal uh, is like this. When I went to Italy... I managed to buy a seal. Actually, I didn't buy a seal. My children did. So I bought their seal, which they weren't very happy about. But what they do is you get this uh, wax thing. I wanted, to, I wanted to borrow a lighter, but I don't think anybody brings a lighter to church. I think Chen Yang had one last time. But anyway, uh, you get the wax. So you get the wax, and you, 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 know, you, you light it, and then the wax falls here. Then you get this seal, and then you, you seal it. Okay, and... And what happens is when you seal something, you can't open it un- unless you're the, the, the intended recipient. So my dad received this letter. I don't know, it looks like a mail for someone's wedding invitation. There it is, a wax seal. Okay, you can't open it. Once I open it, my dad will know that it's been opened. You know, it's sealed closed. So here on this uh, scroll, there are seven seals. So imagine one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And we know that from the, uh, the book of Revelation, seven is the perfect number. It is perfectly sealed. It's a very important document. And that's why, in chapter 5, no one can open the seal. It says there, no one in heaven, in verse 3, no one on earth, and under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Now, literally, uh, the language here is, there's no heavenly creature that can open the seal. There is no earthly creature that can open the seal. There is no dead creature that can open the seal. There's no one even under the earth that can open the scroll. So John is really upset, isn't he? He starts weeping and crying. Now why is he so upset that the scroll cannot be opened? Is he because he really wants to know the secret? Is he like uh, some real busybody? You know, he really wants to know the secret. Like you want to know the ending of Harry Potter and the Deathly Harrows. Alright. What, what, what happens? I want to know what... You know, I just want, is he crying because he really wants to know? No, I don't think so because I think the scroll is actually part of God's plan for the world. And unless the scroll is opened, then God's plan cannot go ahead. Right? God's plan is frustrated. And that's why he is crying. That's why he's weeping. But then... Uh, this elder, one of the 24 elders we presume, in verse 5, says to him, look, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. Now, there are two titles here given for a per- uh, this individual who is yet unseen. He is the lion of Judah. He is the root of David. Now, what does that mean? Both of these Titles are messianic titles. They are kingly titles. Okay, the, the root from the tribe of Judah, Judah uh, the, sorry, the lion from the tribe of Judah, uh, literally means that in the, in the Genesis chapter 49, which is up here, 
it was promised that Judah, from the line of Judah, there will come a ruler. Okay? Uh, will come a ruler. Uh, in verse 10, it says there, uh, sorry, verse 9, I'll read the whole thing. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion who he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until he comes to whom it belongs, the obedience of the nations is his. So here is one messianic sound about this lion who comes from the tribe of Judah, who rules forever and ever. Next slide, Isaiah. talks about how um, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, that means King David's father. Right? It says here the root of David. And this king will rule forever and ever as well. Uh, you can read the whole of Isaiah 11. It's a lot more impressive than what I've taken, shown you here. But he says that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. And it goes on to talk about how you know, the, the child will sleep with the lion and the, he will put his hand in, the, you know, in the, the snake's nest and it will never get bitten. So it's a picture of a messianic king, a Christ-like figure. So here is someone who is worthy to open the scroll. Okay, he didn't say strong enough, but worthy to open the scroll. But then when John looks up, instead of seeing a lion, what does he see? He sees a lamb. And not just any lamb, a dead lamb, a slain lamb, actually a resurrected lamb, as a sacrificial lamb after uh, its sacrifice. So here we have a lion, who is a picture of power, might and glory. And here we have a lamb, which is a picture of weakness and humility and suffering. Now what's happening here? Now remember this is a vision, right? right? It's not a video. Okay, God, John got a vision of heaven, not a video of heaven. Okay? So it's not as if you know, Jesus one minute has a lion's mane and the next minute he's like, got wool. Jesus is the lamb. He is at once the lion and the lamb. And it's trying to show that Jesus actually, he has power and might and glory and, and he does it through his sacrifice, through weakness on the cross. Because the lion is such a powerful image, isn't it? So you think of sporting teams, you think of the British Lions, the you know, rugby team, or the Singapore Lions, you know, the soccer team. But you never say the Singapore Lambs, right? Let's go, the mighty Singapore Lambs. Right? It doesn't work that way. So what happens here is the lamb is a weak image, and especially in the Bible, the lamb is always shown as a sacrificial animal. It dies for people's sins. So here Jesus is this messianic kingly figure who dies as a lamb for his people. But also, <coughs> this lion-lamb figure is also God. Okay, so these are all what makes Jesus worthy to open the scroll. He's both the lion, kingly messianic figure, but he's also the lamb, the sacrificial lamb. But he's also God. Now look at this picture again, right? Come back to the picture. If you look at this passage in chapter 5, it says, no one was found to open the scroll. But in verse 6, John looks and sees the lamb standing in the center of the throne. Actually, he shouldn't be here. The lamb is right in the middle of the throne. Okay? Now, the lamb doesn't come from here. 
the four living creatures. The lamb doesn't come from the 24 elders. The lamb doesn't come from out here in all creation. The lamb comes from the center of the throne. The lamb is God. And that's why the lamb is described as having seven horns and seven eyes. Now this is not a mutated lamb, right? But the horns represent power in the ancient world. And seven horns represents perfect, absolute power. This is a perfectly powerful lamb, like God. And the eyes represent, as it says here, the, the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits. The lamb has the perfect Holy Spirit. So here, Jesus is worthy to open the scrolls because he is at once the king, he is at once the sacrificial lamb, and he is at once God. Right? And therefore, the whole of chapter 5 shows all these animals worshipping the lamb, all the 24 animals worshipping the lamb. Uh, you can't see it's yellow here, but are, the whole of creation is also worshipping the lamb. And in the Bible, especially in Revelation, you never worship anything except God. Chapter 22, verse 8 says, our right, next slide, uh, John uh, fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. But in verse 9, the angel said, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So here, what makes Jesus worthy to open the scroll? Because he is king, Messiah, he is the sacrificial lamb, and he is God. Now here, because of that, all the animals, next slide, everybody, the whole creation, the whole heaven, it says there in verse 13, all, every creature in heaven and earth, they are singing to the lamb. And what do they praise God? Uh, what do they praise the lamb for? Well, it says there in verse 9 that they sing a new song. They sing a new song because they praise the Lamb or they praise Jesus differently from how they praise God. Because it says there in verse 9, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. See, what, what did they praise God for before the living creatures and the 24 elders? Because God is mighty. God is holy. God is a creator. God is permanent. But what did they praise Jesus for? They praise Jesus because He is the Redeemer. Because it says there, you were slain and with your blood you purchased men from every nation, and every language and every tribe. See, what makes Jesus worthy to open the scroll? He's worthy because through His blood there is a church, there are saved people, there are resurrected people, we have the Holy Spirit and our sins are forgiven. Now when you see this picture of Jesus in heaven, what should be our response? Well, our response should be like the angels, isn't it? We should praise Jesus, we should praise Jesus for saving us. Now I know that many times people say, oh, you know, I praise Jesus because, you know, he got me a car, car parking spot or maybe, you know, he made me wealthy and uh, he made me healthy. But what, is, what makes Jesus worthy to open the scroll? That's why we should praise Jesus. Because he redeemed us. 
He saved us from our sins. Nobody else in the whole of creation in all time could do that. But only Jesus as God could do that. So do you praise Jesus in that way? The second thing is, it's, it's a very interesting verse, in verse 8, isn't it? In verse 8, look at what it says there. The 24 elders, uh, now, uh, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, now they're given a harp, right? Each one had a harp. And they were holding bo- golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So now, if you look at this picture, right? Oh, next slide. Oh, no more. Oh, don't worry. Okay, turn back, turn back, turn back. <laughs> now, it's really interesting because in the first picture, they were not holding the harps and there were no bowls, alright? But now, all the creatures have harps and all the elders have harps. Now, you might sort of think, why do they have harps? Right? And, uh, you know, some people, I don't know, maybe you even think, like this, oh, heaven is a really boring place. It's like a long church service. Okay? No, no, no. Or some of you might say, heaven is really boring because, you know, all, the only music they play there is harp. You know, I like jazz. Okay? And uh, people just wear white pajamas. Okay? So some people think it's like this, right? Next slide, you know. It's all about harps. You're playing harps. Okay? And there's a cartoon here I got from the internet. Where this is the next slide? Where this guy said, no more, no more hearts, I can't take it anymore, right? Okay? But actually, I was listening to the comment- uh, one of the uh, commentators, and he makes a good point. You see, harps in the ancient world is an instrument of joy. It's an instrument of joy. And uh, this, uh, one of the uh, uh, preachers, Don Carson, said, you know, you know, you think of a banjo, okay? Or ukulele. Right, you, you never play a banjo at a funeral, right? You never play a ukulele at a funeral. Because, you know, banjo and ukulele are happy instruments. And he said, in the ancient world, a harp is a happy instrument. It's not, a, it's not an instrument of mourning or wailing. So, in Psalm 137, next slide, right, it says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept and we, when we remembered Zion. There on the populace we hang our harps, for there our, our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You see, harps were, were meant to be played at joyous occasions. And so there's not literally harps in heaven, but it is, it is the mood of heaven. You see, when they see Jesus worthy to open the scroll because he has died for people, they are rejoicing emotionally, they are happy. And that's a really great lesson for us. Do we rejoice? Are we happy? that Jesus has saved us from our sins. Is that an emotional response that we get? Or do we only feel happy when we have material things? Now, the second thing we notice in verse 8 is that these creatures, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they also have these bowls. Right? Uh, it says there, they are these golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And again, that's a lesson for us, right? It's not that we should be carrying around bowls of, uh, golden bowls of incense, but do we pray? Because our prayers on earth actually find their way to heaven. You see, in, in the world that we live in, of all the things that we do, uh, probably from the non-Christian perspective, the most irrelevant thing that we do is praying. Right? People think praying is a waste of time. But here, as we look at this passage, prayer is one of the most important things because prayer is one of the things that actually goes up to heaven and praises God. So, is prayer one of the things that you respond with 
in your relationship with God? Is prayer one of the things that you think is important? Because in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, in the vision of heaven, prayer is important. So if you look at this uh, picture of heaven, of God and of Jesus, how does that change the way that you look look at life? Because who is really in charge of the world? It is God. He's mighty. He rules over everything. He rules over your life. Well, if God is that way and Jesus has died to bring you to a relationship with God by the forgiveness of your sins, then you should day and night give your life to God. You should lay down your life, lay down your crowns before God. There is nothing in this world, there is nothing in this created world, no creature, no created thing which is worth exchanging for your relationship with God. When I was in Australia, one of my last years of theological college, I uh, was with a theological college friend of mine and we, as a class, we all went to the coast and his parents had sold their house and had bought a yacht and basically their whole life was sailing their yacht up and down the coast of Australia, right? So when it's winter time and it gets cold, they sail up to the north where it's warmer. You know, when it gets too hot in the north in summertime, they sail down to the south where it's cooler. And you sort of think, wow, you know, uh, talking to them, you sort of think, that's the good life, right? Get your bottle of wine, have your barbie at the back of your yacht, sailing all over the place. But then if you have a picture of heaven, and you know that this is the reality, this is, there is a God who made you, there is a God who died for you, then this is not the good life, isn't it? The good life, the right life, is actually being passionate, not about sailing up and down the coast of Australia, as good as, and attractive as it sounds, but the good life is actually living our lives for God, day and night, worshipping Him, glorifying Him. Because there is a greater reality than the blue waters of the coast of Australia. But there's a greater reality of eternity. And there is nothing, nothing that you can enjoy in this world which compares to the joy of our relationship with God. So I hope that's the case for you and I hope that this vision is what stays with us and not the things around us in this world. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, help us to see the reality of what happens in heaven, of who you really are and what you've done for us, and how we should relate to you in worship and glorification and praise. Help us to see that the world around us is your creation, and that we should lay down our lives day and night, our glory anything that we have, to lay it at your feet. Help us to see that there is nothing in this world that we should exchange for a relationship with you, our Creator. Help us to see that our lives without Jesus is truly not filled with joy at all, but filled with sadness. Because Jesus has died a bloody death for us. And that with the death of Jesus, He is now worthy to open the scrolls for the your plan for the future. And we can either be on your side or against you. Dear Father, may we never exchange the things of this world for you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.